This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Thorn Podcast. We're really, really glad you're here, and we're excited to talk about some fascinating topics for you today. I'm joined again by a friend of the pod and Thorn's Executive Director of Medical Affairs, Dr. Amanda Frick. How are things going, Amanda? How's life in South Carolina? Going great. We had a lovely cold snap for a couple of days, but we're back at 75 I got to say, I think I'd rather have the little bit chilly weather, but other than that, things are great. What's a cold snap in South Carolina? Is that like 65 degrees? That's <laughs> that's winter 65? <laughs> I think we had 40s at night and the, oh. the coldest day was 50 something during the day, but it cold enough for a scarf, which is fun. Well, we're in our usual wide swing weather in Colorado where it could be 75 degrees one day and... 39 the next day, literally. Uh, and we've got a little bit of snow on our hiking trails and the, the ski country is opening up. So people who are fond of skiing, you know, take out your winter clothes and your sweaters and get ready because it looks like it's going to be a great ski season. And, you know, that actually kind of segues into our topic uh, for this podcast. We're going to talk about skin health, you know, and certainly being out on the slopes can be pretty rough on the skin, you know, not to mention the high altitude sun exposure, but you got the wind and the cold and all that kind of stuff. So where do you think we should start talking about skin? Like what's, what are some of the basic principles you think of when it comes to keeping your skin healthy for long periods of time? I think that you know, there's the external and internal sort of aspect. Mm. So diet, what you're taking in, hydration, but also the protection from the outside, which, you know, could be lotion, could be some kind of therapeutic treatment, could be some sort of physical treatment, but also protection. So sunscreens, which I think will come up a bit later and other things repair and kind of a protect from the outside. I'm sure you've seen this scenario, but uh, having originally come from North Carolina where cigarettes are, at least they used to be close to God and country, you know, that it was, it was considered patriotic to smoke in North Carolina, uh, at least when I was growing up. Uh, and I, I bring this up because I see people who are really concerned about their skin and they're using creams and all that kind of stuff, but then they smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. You think that's a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it would be my favorite idea. And and so what's the concern? What is what does cigarette smoking do that would have such a big impact on the skin? I think it's back to our original principle of internal external. So you have some exterior damage immediately from the smoke coming out or onto your hands. People get finger staining and damage mm. that way. Mm -hmm. literally right on their fingers without even having to inhale. But then, yep. of course, the oxidative damage and how you're affecting your body systemically by 
you know, oxygen burden uh, mm-hmm. by smoking. And I think that that's part of it too, let alone the sort of toxic effects of the lo- in the long over time. It seems to me like I, I read an article a number of years back that said the, the thing that can age your skin the fastest is smoking cigarettes. And so it, it really gets back to this issue you're, you're talking about internal health, that people get this idea that I can do anything I want as long as I have the right cream. But it's not true. If your body is aging more rapidly because you're doing something like smoking or drinking a lot of alcohol, you know, which can also raise oxidative stress, putting a burden on the liver, that, you know, things that cause that kind of internal damage are obviously going to be age accelerants. It just drives home the point about lifestyle, how the very first thing you can do if you want to keep your skin healthy is to live a healthy lifestyle. What about laying in the sun? What are your thoughts on, you know, sunbathing and beach bathing? Because it is one of, you know, the favorite pastimes for people that live in coastal cities. I think it's, I think there's a bit of controversy and maybe I don't want to give my opinion because who knows it's going to slap my hand. When I was growing up in Michigan, it's like cloudy 70% of the time. So if there was a sunny day, I remember purposefully being out in the yard with baby oil, like just trying to char yourself on purpose, which I don't think a lot of people are doing anymore. But you know, there's upside and downside. I think a lot of dermatologists would say, even if you wanted to be out in sunbathing, on purpose for the joy, for the vitamin D, for for whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, you should still wear some level of sunscreen because at least you're protecting from some sort of UV rays, even if you want them on purpose. But I, I sort of have a mentality of nothing should be ever completely off limits because life and joy are important. So if that's something that brings you joy and you can moderate it and protect in whatever way that you can, I'd, I would hate to take it away from someone. You know, it's interesting because I, I heard Dr. Michael Hollick speak a number of years ago. He's the researcher at Boston University that actually discovered the active form of vitamin D, the 125-dihydroxy-D, which is made in actually immune cells. Uh, we used to think that it was only made in the kidneys, and Dr. Hollick showed that it was made in the kidneys and in immune cells and could get activated when immune cells were activated. But Dr. Hollick is a big advocate of small amounts of sun exposure. So he says, yeah, we should all be out in the sun, you know, but we should just not do it in the middle of the day. We should only do it in the morning and the afternoon. And he wrote that in, in a couple of medical journals, and he got slammed for saying that. And he got slammed by people in the dermatology department at Boston University who said, well, no amount of sun exposure is good for you. And so Dr. Hollick's response was that the dermatologists have gone over to the dark side. And then the lecture I heard him give, he actually showed a picture of Darth Vader. And he said that, you know, this is this is where the dermatologists are coming from, that they were so afraid of skin cancer that... You know, they were telling people to hide in a closet all day. It's an interesting paradox because you do get more skin cancer if you have a lot of sunburns, but actually sun exposure decreases your overall cancer risk. Isn't that true? Well, you know, it's just like anything else too far in one direction. And then what's it getting you anymore? My question is, doesn't that age your skin rapidly if you're doing this 
too much. So there's clearly a bell curve there. There's an optimal amount, which Dr. Hollick talks about. And then then there's the people that overdo it. And those are the people that end up with the leather skin and all of that. Do we know what the mechanism is behind that? Like all that, all that excessive sun exposure, what's it doing? I think the UVA, UVB radiation actually causing some damage externally is probably the biggest factor. You know, I think there's other things that can go along with it. Some people can probably get away with it because they're genetically blessed or they Mm. have other mitigating factors, but the actual UVA, UVB rays are what's doing the damage to the skin. Yeah. So it's, again, it's back to the oxidative stress. So it's the same kind of thing that happens with cigarette smoking, maybe not as bad. Are you aware of the research on sulforaphane for as a skin protective agent i'm I'm wondering if you have any comments on that or do you want me to you want me to chime in on it i think you should chime in on that i could chime in on it so you know what we know is that sulforaphane which is found in broccoli seeds and broccoli sprouts and actually thorn as a product i guess i could say that we we've got a product let's call crucera that has that broccoli seed extract activates protective enzymes and those protective enzymes actually work like antioxidants so there's this kind of long-standing notion that antioxidants are good for you you know vitamin a c e zinc selenium that they're good for you but there's some research showing that if you take them by mouth they don't always work the way you think they should work whereas if you take things like sulforaphane from broccoli seeds then you actually get this long-acting antioxidant effect, and that can manifest in the skin. And they actually did a study with these nude mice, but these, <laughs> these nude mice, when they expose them to UV radiation, they get skin cancer like crazy. So what they did is they ground up broccoli sprouts and made a cream out of it and put it on the skin of these mice, and then they radiate them. They zap them with ultraviolet radiation, and it dramatically dropped the amount of skin cancer they got. And it did it for days. They literally put the paste, so you're getting some yep. kind of physical block. I mean, arguably, you have a physical block too, right? Right. Okay, so I hear what you're saying. You could say, well, maybe it was just a good sunscreen. Why is it different than zinc oxide? The difference is that they put the cream on. Because This great question you're asking, and I haven't asked that before. And the, the people that did this research, which I think was at Johns Hopkins, found that the effect lasted for three days. And that was the proof of principle is like it wasn't just a block effect. It was actually activating the enzymes in the skin through this mechanism called NRF2. Do you get the same activation by taking them internally? Yep. Yes. That's And that's really where we're going is there are not any commercial skin creams that I know of that have broccoli sprouts in them. I would guess that they would have an interesting smell. Yeah, or, that's where I was going. <laughs> yeah, the, the st- there's stability issues. I think there's been attempts to do that. And I, in the past, I have seen short-lived products that had broccoli oil that you could then mix into your sunscreen. But I think it's been a real problem coming up with a stable form of it. And so that brings us to using, you know, something like Crucera, using it by mouth as a skin protectant agent. We know that sulforaphane is protectant of all kinds of things, you know, that generally good for health and longevity, but this is something that not a lot of people know about, which is that eating broccoli sprouts or extracts from broccoli seeds 
can activate the same mechanisms and they, they definitely play out in the skin. I think that's great. I think we can add a tagline that says, uh, Crucera SGS, not just for detox support. Not just for detox. Well, we're almost for, it's like you're detoxing your skin. It's the same pathways that are involved in overall detox, but it's specifically good for the skin. So, so it, it again brings us back to this whole idea of uh, you want healthy skin on the outside, you got to start on the inside. So I'm wondering what other nutrients that you advocate for healthy skin? What kind of things like would people want to take as a supplement? Or if, if we're saying, well, it's, it's not that you can get away with anything if you just use the right cream. What would people want to take? That what would what should they include as part of their regimen? Well, you can approach that from so many different levels. I mean, I think anything that's good for reducing oxidative damage and keeping inflammation down, it's going to be good for your skin. We're talking about things that uh, support a normal level of inflammation, like uh, omega three fatty acids found in fish oil. Um, there are certain B vitamins that are really important for skin integrity, other water-soluble vitamins like vitamin C that promote collagen restoration and the health of collagen. And then, of course, you can use things that directly are made for a skin effect like collagen, collagen itself. Collagen supports the integrity of the skin. It makes it, it sort of keeps its structure. So it's what makes it plump. Um, and have like a hydrated feel and keeps the thickness in a, in a normal state so you're not showing signs of early aging. And then we actually have a plug time, great product called Collagen Plus that has collagen as a base. Um, I think what makes it really special and different from anything else you're going to find on the market is, is has an addition of nicotinamide riboside, which we've all heard about in other places, probably could be its own podcast for healthy aging support and protection from DNA damage and oxidative stress and healthy cells. But also we have two botanicals in that formula that have specific claims for skin aesthetics and skin structure. Like we were talking about before, when you have these sort of damage on the outside, it's really difficult to treat things like hyperpigmentation, wrinkles, oxidative damage, um, you know, skin sagging and laxity without using a topical application. I think there's plenty of companies that would say they have a good approach, but some of them are very difficult to treat in any case, like melasma or hyperpigmentation issues from sun damage. And there are even less options for internal use support for those kind of complaints. And so what we've got that we've added to Collagen Plus are two botanicals that support skin texture, skin tone, um, can help with evening skin pigment, and then uh, peach ceramide, which actually helps retain moisture in the outer layers of the skin. So you've got that hydration aspect. So, you know, if you want to get fancy about it, then we're talking about skin, skin plumping, skin glowing, um, and then evening out that pigmentation in healthy skin. Pretty special stuff. Yeah, really special stuff. So I'm, let's, let's just talk about something really basic. What's the big deal about collagen? Why, of all the proteins you could give people, why collagen? And is there good evidence to support it? Is there actually research on it? There is. There's actually a lot of research on it. A lot of research. A, a lot. I wouldn't say 
all of it agrees with the other sets of research. And, you know, some may argue that there's more science backing for particular uses of collagen than others. I think because it's a direct component of skin structure is what part of that argument would be. It's easy to absorb because it's usually coming in a hydrolyzed format. It's in really basically small pieces that your body can take in easier than having a full protein. And not only for skin, there's research supporting collagen for gut integrity, gut lining integrity, joint health, and some other things. So yeah, I do think there's research back, especially for particular formats of collagen. Now, does it matter where it comes from? Well, that's where I was going to go next. Not every collagen is created equally, um, especially if you're deriving collagen for a raw material from gelatin, which is one of the common sources. It takes, is that horse hooves? <laughs> well, I think it's horse hooves and some other parts, cow other parts as well. Um, and it takes a lot of chemicals to extract the collagen out of gelatin. And there isn't a lot of chemical processing to extract collagen from the hides. So we're using a collagen format and collagen sourcing that uses a water-based extraction technique. So we don't have chemicals left over in the the finished product for collagen peptides and only grass-fed bovine sources as well. So that's not what you're going to get everywhere. You can definitely find it elsewhere, but a lot, I think that's a lot of what makes the collagen that you use in a good product makes it different. I I guess I need to ask this because I've seen some companies claiming that marine collagen is better. Is there anything to stand on when they say that? It seems to me like the extraction process, you know, and the way they break it down is more important than anything else. Yeah, I think if you can't accomplish a vegan source, um, then you're getting to the to the nitty gritty of do you need it to be pescatarian for for those who are having their lifestyle and dietary concerns on that level. But again, I think you're right. If you if you have to have a product that's animal based, it's really going to be how it's processed and what it can offer from a consumer standpoint and a reality standpoint. There's a cost difference. You have a lot of material you can extract from a, a larger source and marine collagen can carry a, a more significant cost associated as far as the raw material goes. And so you're getting p- a peptide delivery in the same material that's higher in a bovine source than in a marine source. Mm-hmm. So it's a more efficient source. Right, exactly. What you're saying. And when you, you mentioned the word peptide, which, you know, we've already said that, so collagen, the proteins are pretty good-sized molecules, and they have to be broken up into smaller pieces. This is what we call hydrolyzation or hydrolysis, I guess is the correct term. So when, when we're talking about collagen supplements, is it always collagen peptides? I think it normally is, but it it is a function that you should look at if you're purchasing a product just to make sure. But I, I do think the majority of collagen on the market, at least in a powder format, is offered in a peptide form. Okay, here's an obvious question. What do those pep what does it taste like? Well well what is thorns taste like or well, yeah, what, what does thorns Well, taste I mean like? in general, what do they taste like and then what does thorns you know, okay, I'll be honest. I've I've tasted some collagen products that were just disgusting. I yeah, mean, so have I. You, and you open the can, and it's just it's the smell is the first thing that hits you. So you know it it's not really appealing. So Thorn must have somehow worked magic on this. Well, <laughs> we didn't work magic, but we were super picky, like we are about just about everything. We source the material that that dissolves into water nearly 
nearly clear. You can almost not tell that it's in liquid dissolved so efficiently. Um, and it doesn't have taste or smell variables that go along with it. I think some people are more sensitive than others, but we, when we were doing some quality tests and taste tests for organoleptics, when we were looking through the materials, we had people outrightly refuse because they've had such negative experiences with collagen before that they were mm -hmm. scared to even try it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and we got it past them. So the good thing is, you know, we, this is a flavored product, uh, because it does have botanicals in it. So it's got a passion fruit, berry flavor, passion berry flavor, which is really pleasant. And to me, it has no aftertaste of anything other than the intended flavor. And it doesn't have any sort of unpleasant smell, which is, it's, it makes it even easier and more palatable. Though I will say if you took all of that out and just put our collagen straight into water, which I have, it, it has basically no smell, no taste. So does that is that a reflection of how clean the product is? I do. I do think that's part of it. It's it's the efficiency of the processing to remove you know, get your clarified source material. And also what you use to process it, you know, the harsh chemicals you need to use to extract collagen from gelatin, even if you're processing them out are still going to leave some sort of residue. And I think they do have an effect on the, the overall material taste and smell. What, what's in jello? Gelatin. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> they must do something to the jello to give it a particular I think, flavor. I think they probably add some flavor and maybe a little bit of color, <laughs> possibly color. So somebody might ask, well, couldn't I just take jello and wouldn't I get the collagen benefits from that? How, what's the difference of doing the collagen peptide as yeah, a formula? So I think that goes back to your original. I think some people do supplement with gelatin for particular reasons, but then you're you're back to the larger protein structure. So mm -hmm. you're not in the peptide. It hasn't been hydrolyzed. And so you still have to break it apart. Arguably, you can get some of the benefit out of it, but you're not having it in that like pre-digested form for optimal absorption and utilization. Wonderful. That's really helpful. So I think it's time for us to take a short break. And then when we come back, we'll take some questions from our listeners. Tired of bloating, gas, and other digestive discomfort? Help keep your gut happy and healthy with premium probiotics digestive enzymes, and other innovative solutions by Thorne to support optimal gut health. One example is Thorne's Floramin Prime Probiotic. This shelf-stable and stomach acid-resistant probiotic blend offers everyday GI and weight management support. Take control of the health of your gut. Visit Thorne.com to explore probiotics, digestive enzymes, and other ways to support a happy and healthy gut. That's T-H-O-R-N-E dot com. And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions from the community. Our first question this week comes from a listener who asks, why do we need things like lotion and creams? Shouldn't our skin naturally be healthy on its own? What do you think, Amanda? I think that's a mixed bag. So I think that we all have some sort of internal weakness for some reason or another. But yeah, I think we should be we should have naturally healthy skin, but that all that all is gonna take place from what you're doing internally, right? So we're back to healthy diet, 
exercise, hydration. You know, I think we hear a lot, you can't out-exercise a bad diet. You can't out-cream a bad diet either for your skin health. So maybe you do and maybe you don't need lotion and creams, but I think almost everyone would say you do need some sort of protection from the sun. So a sunscreen, if you consider that a lotion or cream. And then if, if you need assistance or you feel like you want to have some level of improvement, you know, if you're making good choices and wise choices about the preservatives in your products, I, I don't think I have necessarily anything against them as long as they're considered an adjunct to the healthy diet and internal health. I totally agree with you. And I, I would think there's two parts to this response. One is uh, the environment can have a big impact, you know, and in, in Colorado, it gets pretty darn cold and dry in the winter, even though we have these big snowstorms, we also have long periods of time where it's windy and cold and dry. And man, my skin, especially my hands and a bit on my face gets really trashed come about January, February, you know, cracking, drying. And I can't imagine not putting some kind of cream or something on there, you know, at bedtime. I, I often use a Manuka honey cream that works really well. Um, you know, it's it's a challenge to find stuff that's not messy. Well, are you uh, mixing your honey cream with your uh, broccoli seed extract? So well, I I probably could. Um, <laughs> no, I but I actually buy a manuka honey cream that works really well, and I get cracked feet in the winter. You know, they, it dries out in the pool. So so in other words, I think there's scenarios where it's really appropriate to use some kind of moisturizer to stop that cracking because otherwise you can get in a bad cycle where you get cracking and then it bleeds and then it gets infected. And so I think you can certainly justify it then. People that I think are using lotion in hopes that it's going to reverse a bad lifestyle, I think are, are not being rational. And there's a phrase you had about that about internal versus external. Yeah, you can't you can't out lotion a bad diet. You can't out lotion a bad diet. So I think that's a really important take home is like it starts with what's going on internally. And then there's a another part of the response which is uh really important when people ask me about creams and I do get asked about this all the time in my practice and they say what about this brand or that brand? The first thing I say is would you heat it? And that seems like a bizarre question, but if you put something on your skin, you're eating it, right? It's going into your body. And they have done studies of creams that had, say, uh, methylparabens and parabens. They, you know, put the stuff like on their chest or on their face, and they find that in the lymph nodes in the arm. So we're absorbing all those estrogen-like compounds that are in those creams. So you really want to use a super clean product. If you're going to use a lotion, you have to think, well, I am eating this. It is going to get in my body. I so think that, we I think we yeah. have a Take 5 daily blog on thorn.com that talks about endocrine disruptors, which mm-hmm. you're really commonly going to find in beauty products, which reviews some of those different things like you're talking about, like phthalates and parabens. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. I think the, the the other part was, you know, you mentioned the environment about being cold and dry, but also people live in toxic environments where air pollution is an issue. So you could be doing everything right 
or, you know, potentially have a very healthy diet and genetically really naturally healthy skin, but you still can't combat what's in the air or have control over that. So Mm -hmm. good point. What about sunscreen? I know when I was in Australia a couple of years ago, I saw big signs about this. And then I was actually in Hawaii right before the pandemic. And I saw similar signs that were talking about protecting the coral. So coastal areas are really getting super aware about the fact that you get a lot of snorkelers and surfers and people out there that are lathering on the sunscreen and that it's actually harmful for wildlife. So are there environmentally responsible alternatives to sunscreens that hurt the coral or the fish? Yeah, I think we're back to the good thing is the best choices for you are probably the best choices for the environment and for the coral and coral bleaching. So the chemical versus physical sunscreen argument of, you know, not not using these chemicals that work under your skin by changing how you react to the UVA and UVB rays, whereas a a physical block sits on the outer surface of your skin to deflect those rays. And those, those ones that sit on the outside have little impact on the environment and are probably the best health choice options. Though I did want to bring up because you were saying, would you eat it? If you Uh wouldn't eat it, don't put it on your skin. I wouldn't eat titanium dioxide, but I would put it on my skin Uh or or titanium oxide. Yeah, same, zinc oxide. You know, these are on our no list. We would never put them in a thorn supplement. It's, you know, something that we just will never use for internal use. But yet I think I would advocate for external use. So how about going back to your lymph node story? Is it the particles too big that you can't absorb it through your skin? Or what makes it okay to put on the outside, but not on the inside? I have to say that I'm... I don't use a lot of sunscreen, even though I spend quite a bit of time outdoors in Colorado. But what I do is wear long sleeve, thin long sleeve shirts, a really big sun hat. Sometimes I even wear gloves, you know, very light gloves in the summer if it's a super sunny day. So my preference is just to to not get too much sun. I'm still getting it because I, you know, I tan a little bit. So what fruits are good for skin glow? Are there particular fruits? And I assume the person is asking about the hydroxy the fruit hydroxy acids, which are in a lot of skin products. Maybe that, and or is there something, is there another magic ingredient in fruit that we should know about? Well, I think every fruit could be good for skin glow, right? So you're contributing to antioxidant support, polyphenols, really important for skin health. You know, ceramides, which we don't usually think of for skin glow, are really important for, if you want to call glow a hydration, uh, glow being a, a portion of like the hydration in the outer surface of your skin, that's what ceramides are really doing. They're sort of holding water in that layer of your skin. Usually that not, not from a fruit. I think most often when we're taking those internally, they're coming from a wheat source because they're, it's really high in those ceramides, but then you have a, a potential gluten issue there. So white peach actually has some really good studies and specific study on an ingredient called hydropeach, which is ceramide. So you can go and eat a lot of peaches if you like, um, but I don't think you're going to get as far as if you're using some really good uh, clean fruit-based ingredients for that purpose to get your ceramides in. So the fruit extract might actually be better. Yeah, exactly. More potent at least. So here's a question, um, and you know, it's very common. What does, what causes acne? Um, and, and, you know, what, what can we do about it? Is there, are there dietary things that, 
do it. Now, I'm, I'm guessing you're going to say, well, there are different kinds of acne. Yeah, I, that's exactly true. There are different kinds of acne. I think some are more in control of the the person who's experiencing the acne than, than others. There's some level of genetic component to how much oil your skin produces. Um, when I was younger, it was, you had acne because you ate pizza and you ate fatty things and, mm-hmm. you know, your, your diet was bad. Um, but I'm so not greasy sure. greasy food made greasy skin was the Exactly. Thought. Yeah, exactly. Which, which we know better now, though, that doesn't mean you should go out and have some pizza if you have acne, because there may be other things about pizza that are not, that are not great for your skin. I think you were talking to me about simple carbohydrates in that aspect, right? Yeah, Lauren, Dr. Lauren Cordain, who's here in Colorado, did a interesting study, I think, in the South Pacific, where he looked at kids in one island that were eating a lot of refined carbs, and kids on another island that were same age, same kind of physical environment that were not eating refined carbs, and he was able to show that the ones eating the refined carbs had a lot more acne. And that the whole theory was that increased your blood sugar, which increased your insulin, and that insulin had effect on reproductive hormones, and the reproductive hormones then caused overproduction of oil in the skin. So, you know, it's a whole chain of events that comes about as a result of, of eating junk food, basically. You know, which is interesting because the dermatologists for years maintained that diet had nothing to do with acne. And I think that's been thoroughly disproven. It's pretty clear that diet makes a difference. I'd welcome a debate with anyone who tells me that diet has no effect on basically anything. Give me some sort of physical condition other than pure genetics that you can convince me that diet doesn't have any effect on. And I, I'll sit for that. It always plays a role. Yeah. Yeah, always plays a role. So um, what about water? Is water good for your skin? I mean, it sounds like kind of an obvious thing, but, it, <laughs> but maybe not. I mean, what, what, why is water important? Well, I mean, I think water is important for so many things. Of course, you're going to contribute to hydration in all of your tissues, which would include your skin. Water helps you process basically everything. You, you couldn't appropriately detox things from your body without that water. You know, that could be an an entire conversation about what water does in your body, although I don't think anybody needs any kind of lecture about drinking water at this point. But, you know, from the opposite side of that, which we hadn't talked about before, is, you know, exercise is part of a healthy diet, but physically sweating and releasing that water through your skin, you know, that's a direct impact of skin health. That's your, your sort of physical detoxification mechanism from the inside out. Uh, you have to have water to efficiently sweat. And so, of course, that becomes important from, from that aspect, not just internally, but it, in a way, in an, in an external way. So sweat is good. Sweat is good. Yes. So we talked about the benefits of collagen. One of our listeners asked, what destroys collagen? What's bad for collagen? I think lots of things could be bad for collagen, but the most important thing, which, you know, it's sort of that like evil term that's bad for everything is oxidative stress oxidative damage, sort of breaking down collagen, messing with the integrity in the skin layer or the gut layer or any other place that, you know, you really want it to be strong. And the oxidative damage is back to all the same things. Um, you know, we're kind of a broken record, bad diet, bad environment. Cigarette smoking. Cigarette smoking. Yep, 
exactly. Some some in your control and some not. And oxidative damage is a, is a natural part of even a healthy diet. It's just how your body is going to be processing what it's, you know, what it's doing. It's just how much can you handle at once? How much can your body handle as a normal process and what's damaging and what's not? So what about eczema? A listener has a question about tips for dealing with eczema and they're wondering about advice they've heard like does it help to soak your hands in milk or bleach or oats which you know i have to say when you first hear that you think that's bizarre but actually there's data on oats and bleach so maybe you could give us a little bit of perspective on what eczema is from a naturopathic perspective or i think even a functional medicine perspective we talk about skin health being intricately connected to gut health i used to talk to my patients about how embryonic development works and you're you're just one big tube that's inside out on itself and turned in on itself so in in a sense your tissues come from the same place, the same tissue on the inside of your gut is what's on the outside of your body. So, you know, affect anything that's affecting your gut integrity is also affecting your skin. So in my practice, I would commonly treat eczema by treating the gut, balancing the gut, removing food sensitivities. If there is a leaky gut component or gut inflammation, having that be a major, a major part of what's going on there. And then of course, anything that you can use to treat from an external standpoint is, is like, like you're talking about soaking in oats. I I can't get on team bleach no matter what, but (laughs) I'd be willing to accept oats. And and then anything else that's helping to manage inflammation like we were talking about before. So omega-3 fatty acids can assist with that and anything that's going to help build up the integrity of the external layers of the skin. So just to throw in a comment about the bleach, um, I know my, my good friend, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, who you probably... No, she's a naturopath in Connecticut, has her own blog, and is a big supporter of Thorne. She she gives a great lecture for IFM on eczema, and she talks about the people that have really advanced disease. And what's happening there is that the skin barrier has been broken down for so long that it can't keep the normal bacteria out of the tissue. And so you, you end up with this low-level infection that causes inflammation. And so what that bleach does when you're using very dilute bleach, and that's important to point out, but it's very, very dilute bleach, it basically is just kind of disinfecting and rebooting the skin microbiome. So it sounds bizarre, but it actually can be really helpful for people with eczema, especially the hands. I I wouldn't recommend a whole body bleach soak, but just, just so people know that there is a rationale behind it. And similarly with oats, there are beneficial ingredients in oats, including beta-glucans. Uh, beta-glucans are the same active ingredients you find in mushrooms. And, you know, we know that they're good for priming the immune system. But topical beta-glucans, like the ones that you find in oats, actually help with wound healing. So there are a number of oat-based products that are, you know, soaps, creams, etc., that are actually pretty darn good for eczema. What about the... so? I know that you can use vinegar, diluted vinegar soaks for tinea or other kind of skin fungal infections. Would it have the same effect to substitute the bleach with, with vinegar or is yeah, it not going to have very, enough? It, no, I think it's the same idea. It's like it's a very, you want to use very dilute because, you know, you don't want to stink things up. Um, so, <laughs> pickle feet. Yeah, yeah, pickle feet. We got a couple more questions I want to dive in more quickly. What about Botox? What do you think about people that use Botox? Is that a 
Is that a good thing or bad thing? Is it unhealthy? Is it dangerous? What are your thoughts on that? It's very popular, obviously. Yeah, it is. I will reserve my personal thoughts. I have no judgment (laughs) for anyone who would prefer to use Botox. I think that feeling good about yourself on the outside is really integral to having a happy life. And, you know, you do you. Whatever makes you happy and makes you feel confident is a really important thing. But, you know, there are other ways you can approach. So I don't think that there are a lot of natural options that can give you that immediate effect that you can get from Botox. And so there's that. But Botox is is working by sort of inhibiting something, right? It's making muscles lax on purpose. Um, it's causing basically a downscale and it works and, you know, it creates a visual that the people are seeking. Alternatively, you could think of it from the opposite direction, right? So instead of breaking down or stopping a process, maybe you support creation of new tissue to plump up that area, or you think about adding to instead of subtracting. And so, you know, options for that are, of course, supplements that we've talked about, healthy diet we've discussed, but other things that can create tiny damage, which makes your skin repair itself and can help it plump back up. So microneedling techniques, which you can get from dermatology or aesthetic practices. And then aesthetic acupuncture has a a lot of really great data, actually, specifically causing tissue growth in your wrinkles because you can target them so specifically with very small needles. So needle Botox, needle acupuncture, um, but totally different approach, a build instead of a takeaway. So no big red flags about long-term toxicity of Botox. You're just wondering if there might be a better way to accomplish the same thing without having to go to a pharmaceutical. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is even if we were 100% sure that those toxins are staying locally and only having a small effect, once it's done, it's done. So if you're unhappy with that result, there's not really any going back. You can do some things to try to help it come back a little sooner, but it's there and you're stuck with it as long as it's going to last. So Definitely works for people and not so much for others, and always good to have options in two directions. Okay, folks, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, Be sure to leave a comment and subscribe to the show. We'd really appreciate it if you do that. Thank you for listening, everyone, and thank you, Amanda, for coming back on the show and podcasting with me. Of course, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at thornhealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.